0: got With Paul Madison. So Hello everybody. How's everybody doing? I'm sure you're doing spectacular in this very cold and trying January that is sometimes beautifully warm and 60 degrees and you're walking around in shorts and you're like, I love New York. It's the best city ever. And then it's negative 20 and you have 75,000 pounds of clothes on. You're like, I hate New York, man. I'm leaving here, man. I'm I'm going going to LA, man. (sighs) Whatever, it's all right. As an aged New Yorker, you know that and a musician this is like, this is summer vacation. man. It's January. It's, you get to mellow out. January, you take it easy and maybe write some songs. Go take lessons with my next guest, Rick Molina. He's the boss. He's the cat. He's the coolest, coolest dude ever. When I was a young man, like 23 years old, teaching guitar lessons, I was sub-teaching for a really phenomenal guitar teacher while he was away in St. Barts for a month. And I, there was a guitar student. Her name was Zahava. What a cool name, right? She's like a shaman name, like Zahava. And I was like, oh, yeah. She's like, my other guitar teacher, my other guitar teacher. And I was like, who is this mystic guitar teacher? And his name was Rick Molini. And she was talking about how amazing Rick was. And so I ended up meeting Rick. I was like, I got to take lessons with this guy. I'm fresh out of music school. And this is a Rick analogy. He's like, when you get out of music school, you're like a turkey ready for the slaughter. You just have all this knowledge and you have no idea how to use it appropriately, which is so true. You hear all these cats, these young cats and you're like, oh man, dude, is that what I sounded like? You sound horrible. Why are you playing all the wrong stuff? You got to play the right shit. So that's something I learned from Rick. He's been a mentor. And he I always he always cracked me the shit up, man, because like I've got to I feel like he's my clock for my own aging. Because I remember when I was taking a lesson with him, I think Rick just turned 59. And when he was 40, he was like, Man, I got a pain in my back. They don't tell you that when you turn 40, man, you're gonna have a pain in your back. Every you look around at oh, other 40-year-old. His stories are ridiculous. I remember one time I was taking a lesson with him, with Rick. He looks down at his legs, he's like, oh my god, I have old man legs! When the hell did this happen? And then he'll continually just pulverize my technique. So Rick is a super intellectual as well as a crushing New York City scary guitar player. One of the types of guitar players that can sound like Danny Gatton while doing country or can do any jazz guitar player. He can sound like Wes Montgomery or Frizzell or whoever, dude. Ben Monder doing the rhythm changes on Acid. He plays rock. He sounds like Vi. And then his whole thing goes even deeper than that. Dude can just straight up crush classical guitar. You're like, what? And you do that too? And then he picks up a slide and he does... He um, When I was going to lessons with him, I went to him. And he had like 17 guitar slides out. I was like, what the... Dude... And I think in the past four years or so, you'll hear toward the end of this, he's in a deep gypsy jazz guitar phase where, of course, you hear him play it and you're like, that's the best gypsy jazz guitar I've ever heard. And that's like maybe a chord he would play over that. I'm sitting down in front of my piano because I have a standing desk and it seems, it's really, it doesn't seem, I don't feel like doing a little standing, so I took, took the seat and I had my coffee and I was playing some piano and I was like, I should record this intro for this... Rick thing because now it's January and it's cold and we probably recorded that when it was beautiful in his scary apartment. It's scary because he'll put the metronome on 10 and make you play scales in whole notes at 10 and then record that and then <laughs> make you listen to yourself and explain to you how much you suck. So it's a great experience and I recommend if you are looking for like a guitar lesson you don't want to come to Lagond. And study with me. You should go study with Rick. So, just so you know who Rick is, he is a super jazz guitar player from the '80s, and then he went on tour for Tommy's The Who. He talks about that in the podcast, which is that's one of the hilarious stories of it. He's backed up all of the singers. I mean, he's legit one of the, like the top top dudes in New York: Mariah, Mark Anthony, Andrea Bocelli, Clay Aiken. Clay Aiken one is funny. I kind of like to bust his chops on that but i would not i know rick i know you're listening to this but i wouldn't be like yeah man clay aiken baby but that's a hot gig what are you talking about and then he's been the guitar player for the juggernaut broadway show wicked since the beginning of time so he's been doing that for a minute which he let me sit in the pit with him and then i'll be like hey man you should let me sub your book he's like don't do it man don't come down here man and I'm like, okay, cool. But Rick has always encouraged me to do my own thing and be weird. He loves creepy, weird stuff, which is cool. And in no important time does he sacrifice like his whole artistic integrity at any moment of time. So definitely be sure to check out his own records if you get a second. The Rick Molina Group, I believe, if you find it on Spotify. And he has an awesome uh, blog called mental guitardation. But I don't know if he has that up anymore. And I'll probably talk about that. But anyway, please enjoy the Rick Molina. He's like so entertaining that I barely have to talk. He just talks. He tells these hilarious stories. You're just like, you're going to be entertained. He's entertaining. You got it's entertaining. Enjoy it. I hope you have the wonderful rest of your January. And uh, next up, I got some of my favorite people on this podcast. So, that, look forward to that. Rage and roll. Enjoy. Secret,
1: famous. With Paul yeah.
0: Cats and Kittens, I am in the house of the holy with the great Rick Molina. Oh, His apartment has tortured my nightmares for like <laughs> 10 years. It's <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> See, literally, Rick, I've dreamed about your apartment in this park. <laughs> I, I had a dream. I was running around in the park one time. Anyway. It's a nice I, view, right? It's a beautiful <laughs> park In New York City, you have this much greenery. Yeah. With <laughs> super guitarist, producer, songwriter. I mean, the list goes on and on. He's been on Wicked for how many years now?
1: Um, we're going to do 14 years uh, this month, actually, at the end of this month. And you were with them from,
0: from the, the very beginning. beginning. You were like the first, you were like the third
1: well, guy there. Well, um, the... Um, I mean, the production did like previews in San Francisco. I didn't have anything to do with that (laughs) at the time. I guess I was just kind of floundering around. I just, you know, 9-11 had happened and all that stuff. So uh, for a year, uh, you know, everything stopped. I'd been touring before that quite a bit and for a number of years. And, you know, all the tours stopped. So I came back. uh, I kind of I think I flipped a coin or something. Uh, actually, there's an interesting story. It was August of 2001, and I was in I think South Carolina or Arkansas. At uh, we were playing a state fair. Um, you know, it was with 98 degrees, and we were doing these radio shows. And in the summer, you do all the state fairs. So I, I've had amazing situations. Like one time, we were up here in upstate New York, I think in Elmira or something like that, and uh, we were doing. BB King was on the bill, and I I sat. We were going on the next day, but we'd gotten there the day before, and you know, I knew BB was gonna be on there in, in Tower of Power, you know, that night. So I just told the guys, that I said, like, I'm just gonna stay here, because we went, we came in to check out the venue or something like that, and everybody drove like 15 miles back to the hotel. And I said, I'm just gonna stay here, I'll cop a ride with whoever, you know, a fan, anybody hitchhike, you know, because I wanted yeah. to be there. And I, <clears throat> I got to sit on a folding chair right behind the 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 cluster, the side fill cluster, and and watch you know BB do this thing. I watched Tower Pro, I watched everybody, but uh, you know it was the evening and he was like the the headliner. And uh, one of the things that I it was it was really such a, a beautiful moment to see how this guy was more of a dignitary. You know, he was like a, an ambassador of goodwill and. And, and, you know, a representative of a different era. You can f- you could just get the sense of like where he had been. You know, all these people, these giants that that he was, one, you know, he was one of the giants and you know, Muddy Waters and all, you could feel all the Willie Dixon. And uh, he's handing out these trinkets. You know, the band is playing and he's, you know, handing out these little gold chains to, you know, the girls in the front row and everything like that. Kind of like, I don't know, like some, it's it's like the Candyman or something, and um, it, a couple of things. Every time someone would take a solo, he would turn and you know look at them at the end of the solo, and they would kind of genuflect, they would bow to each other like of some royal court thing, Mm -hmm. which I found to be like really interesting, like the, the, um, you know, the ceremony that these people had between them, and you know the. Visual respect for each other was something I thought that was really cool because you kind of don't think of that when you're just like slogging away, you know, at a wedding (laughs) band or something like. You're just laughing so hard, you're trying to keep it together, and you know all the things that go on. But but this was like just so mannered. And then um, you know, and he would play the these iconic kind of BB King things, you know, on the guitar, and I was just amazed at how. Uh, perfect everything was and then in the middle of the show like like the last third of the show suddenly he does a ballad and transcends the whole thing forget you're on stage forget you're you know in Elmira you're just kind of like he take just kind of took everybody off into this place You know, every single note he played, it's like the silence around him and just the power of every single note. He played a solo that would be the greatest solo you ever heard in your life. Just for one song. And the rest of it, the rest of the entire set, was this kind of diplomatic show. But there was one moment where it was like, boom, the power of the thing, and that really Really did something to me when I when I saw that. I realized that there's a there's a tremendous solitude for the artist. You know, th- there's a, a summoning. It's like you summon everything that you have, your entire experience, devoid of the of every. I mean, it's like this super highly personal thing. And for somebody who's such a public figure to reveal that, I think is what we crave maybe as listeners is to see you know somebody really reveal their inner sanctum for a moment and and the i think the great entertainment value or the power of stagecraft is when you can you can develop the the experience to the point where the, the audience is ready to hear that and then you just open the gates and it's always there and you can you can actually reveal that, and then okay. Now here we are. Hope you had a great night. <laughs> you know, everybody go home. <laughs> while everybody's like, "What was that?" You know, that's the most amazing thing I ever heard in my life. So um, yeah, I was pretty lucky to um, to be around to be around that thing. Um, anyway, I think I was talking about uh, this thing down in in South Carolina. I'm trying to remember. What Did you bring were? that back to the 98 degrees show the next night? I mean, um. <laughs> well <laughs> I mean I can, I can I'm not gonna speak out of school just because it's not it's it's just not good practice it's not kind but you know in in that tour there were you know this was a different uh, there was a different me- mechanism at work there you know people playing with tracks and things like that which you know uh, the the responsibility of the timing of the show and of certain uh, certain... I guess high high marks that were that were supposed to be hit every night, you know. So you had them on tape and you know things like that. Mm. So I think that part of the tour that I was doing at that time was an education in in uh, being able to be incredibly consistent. So yes. all of those acts, you know, we were with Britney Spears and we were with a bunch of other people, and this was the beginning of you know that kind of strange lip-syncing thing that was going on and not to say that she was lip-syncing because i know she wasn't just for the just you know for people to know at least not in that tour yeah um but there were there were uh, a lot of elements of the music that were on tape <laughs> mm. you know so the band was playing but there was also a, the band from the record playing so yeah. it kind of blurred the lines between how much you could really do <laughs> yes. how much you could you could add to it you must um, add your
0: eight bars or 16 bars well there i was changing lucky. costumes and you just come out and sh- melt face for a little bit
1: or um to, yeah, yeah we did do that right, during the costume changes and stuff like that and since i was the music director i was I, I you know i could manipulate all of the tracks so you know i would i would select you know i had to play sometimes there were eight guitar tracks you know that were you know essential and lots of keyboard tracks and whatnot, so I would mute, um, like if you look at the whole thing, like the song from the beginning to the end, there would be an acoustic part and electric and whatnot, and I would uh, work out my guitar changes so that I would play the, like the opening acoustic part, and then I would switch over to electric, and the acoustic part would then take over on tape, but I would then be playing the electric part, and that would be muted, and then the solo would be muted, and you know, you kind of move through the... Landscape of the music that way, um, to to just make sure that the parts that people hear and are used to are going to be there, and you try to replicate, but also you know give a little bit of a dimension of like here we are today. So mm. yeah. you know there was that, and then there were other moments where I think we were in Tokyo once, and uh, at the Zep we were playing at the Zep, and we were having lighting problems, <clears throat> and at one point. Um, the the artists had had enough <laughs> <laughs> they were tired i guess yeah. you know this is near the end of the tour and people weren't making as much money i don't think or yeah. you know the crowds weren't as people getting tired so yeah. people were just getting upset because they were seeing the end of it and these guys just you know kind of just they had a moment of whatever and they left the stage in the middle of the thing pissed off know because the lights kept going out and then i just looked over and they were just like gone so i just you know it's on this little microphone i i could talk to everybody and i just told i i was kind of panicking because the you know the audience was there and everyone had they just walked off the stage right and uh so i i told the drummer george (laughs) i said uh i said george just. Cop a hot one, I think I said, or something like that. Get something hot. Cop a hot one. is what I used to say to these guys, you know. And then I'd say, and then Alex was the bass player. I said, like, Alex, you follow him. And Sandy, Cassandra O'Neill, who was, you know, was with Prince's band and who's a very fine musician, tremendous career, also a good friend of mine. She was playing keyboards. I was like, let George, let George and Alex take it for a minute, and then Sandy, you drop some science on it. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea what I was saying. Yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I was trying to be cool. You're you were just know? trying to play it off, yeah. <laughs> I was trying to be like a cool, you know, I was 20 years older than these, these people, so I was trying to speak, we had a language. We, it was, you know, it's like a family when you're out there and there was a lot of love there and a lot of respect. So it was actually, it may sound ridiculous and I'm sure it does sound absurd, but it actually, it it (laughs) actually did mean something, you know? Yes, of course. So we did this thing, right? And I was freaked and I didn't know how long this would go. So I I had my Les Paul, and I'm playing through this Marshall, and it's dimed. And I just reach back, and I pick up this giant, this big brass slide, right? And I start playing, and I just play all six strings open, just trembling, this horrible sound. And I just get the slide right at the beginning. I'm going, whoa. You know, and I start going up, 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 all the way up, You know, it must have taken 30 seconds just to do that. You know, this is like the precursor or like the you know, the opening of like some crazy jam that would actually turn out to be really good and there is a recording of it somewhere and they they said it was burning. And the the comment from the production manager afterwards, because I was always so involved in playing like all naughty crazy stuff. He said, man, that was the best solo I ever heard you play. You didn't play fast. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, I did a tour after that. And uh, we played we played Dodger Stadium, 70,000 people. It was like We were with uh, Ricky Martin and Will Smith. And Blondie had just, you know, re- re-emerged. And it was it was a big thing. Um, I do remember. This is with the same band, yeah, same yeah. yeah, yeah. I I do yeah. remember. I'm like this is all just guitar talk, but I I do remember um, lobbing lobbing notes out over the stadium, rather than playing like you know, hey, you know, flag waving kind of. Lee Konitz calls it flag waving when you play a lot of lot like of prepared you know things that are meant to uh, astonish <laughs> like the the three guys that are standing in the corner with their arms crossed you no, know right. who play guitar yeah <laughs> we're just looking at you but, shit. you know and and Lee called that flag waving so <clears throat> but what I did uh, I did realize is that you know lobbing these these huge you know... <laughs> notes over the over the stadium really r- really um <clears throat> connected to the audience you know so I, I did learn quite a bit about how to you know play the room so to speak so um yeah yeah big, it was, room. it, it big was, rooms yeah big it's big crazy rooms <laughs> big you know nuts <laughs> rooms you know and r- ricky martin was playing was one of the headliners there and this was at the peak of la vida loca and all that thing right so i used i had this habit of going through the venue during you know while people were walking in just so i could be out there and kind of see people come in and just you know i mean nobody knew who i was and didn't matter if they did anyway so i was just kind of walking around and at this particular venue there were hundreds of girls with Ricky written on their foreheads in Sharpie and stuff like that and colored, Mm -hmm. you know, I love Ricky and all that. So of course I made sure that I had a lot of pictures taken of me with a lot of these girls around me, you know, just for my own, (laughs) just for (laughs) for my own ego. right? Of course it was the wrong Ricky, but who gives a shit? It's the name works. works. It's your name. (laughs) That's my weakness right there. (laughs) Anyway, um, I'm trying to remember what what I was going to say about the South Carolina Carolina thing that we did. (laughs) This is such a boring interview. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, You'll let it. No, it started pretty strong. I think we're
0: good. (laughs) Um, Not many people have stories, but by one, (laughs) I remember you telling stories about 98 Degrees and when non-musicians try to explain to you or non you know trained musicians try to explain to you what's wrong with the music and they don't necessarily <laughs> have the words to convey that I just remember you'd be like
1: fuck it sucked
0: the show sucked it sucked and you're like what was it you're asking me and I'm like oh, I oh you're oh, you trying mean you... to diagnose what went wrong oh with you the mean show? with the artists
1: Yes. oh the artists yes. <laughs> Well, you know, you don't want to
0: as a sideman guitar player. You don't want to say as sideman like, it's not a problem. Um, it's, it's the music director. So, what did not you like? Heat. What yeah. can we change the tempos?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's um, uh, you know, it's like I, I, I've been lucky because I've been a band leader. I've had, had a lot, you know. I, I guess maybe maybe it's because I was organized, or maybe because I just you know I'm such a like boss about things or something like that with myself, you know that. Maybe that projects somehow. But um, yeah, I, I, I did find myself in situations where I was the music director or the de facto music director, even if it wasn't, you know, if I didn't have a title or wasn't getting paid the bread. <laughs> um, <laughs> still, there was somehow the responsibility Came at times you. It, it landed on my shoulders. And, and one of the things that I learned early on, of course, is that you have to you, you, what people say to you is one thing and what they're experiencing is an, is another thing. Sometimes the words don't really match what's going on. Mm. And that's a, a perfect example. You know, we would finish a show and I go into the dressing room <laughs> and these guys would be, you know, just pacing around like, you know, like crazy, you know, just like, like animals, you know, because it you know, you you so, you know, that you got all the adrenaline. Yeah. The craziness and stuff. And, you know, it's such a high when you get off stage, especially in those manufactured uh, devotional kind of concerts that are, you know, the hysteria in that particular genre was something I'd never seen before. So it, it was shocking. You <laughs> know, you could play a, a jazz club and people are like, you know, but over there you have n- like full on nervous breakdown, the entire front row, snot and tears, and, you know, and you're just your more your your paternal instinct kicks in They're like are you okay? Yeah. You know. Um but <clears throat> the uh yeah, these guys would be facing around and you know, the fucking show sucked, you know <laughs> And I'd be like, oh, okay, well you know, what about it sucked? I mean can is there any song in particular You know, and they would say, like, insane shit, you know, insane things. Like, I don't like the way that guy looks at me. You know, he thinks I can't sing or something like that. (laughs) You know, I guess people just go people go to their own thing it's like you feel like shit i sang like shit it's like the bass player looked at me and you know i hate him because he he knows i can't sing or something or he thinks he can sing better than me you know crazy crazy stuff yeah stuff so you try to uh i always tried to bring it to a factual level and just allow the emotional thing to go crazy and then just be like it well which which song were you getting the evil eye you know or you know, you know at what time or is there something i can do you want me to tell them just to never look at you, you know? <laughs> <laughs> which you might think this is ridiculous but oh, dude God. there are some a-list singers who when we would do these big radio shows like i remember the jingle ball and in, in in uh <laughs> in madison square garden and, and you know the memo came down and it's like when this singer walks down the hall and you know you're doing a thing with 15 acts you know and when this singer walks down the hall do not look at her you know do not make eye contact with her and it wasn't only one there were a few of them at that time in that era that part of the rider or whatever you know what came down on high through management was do not make eye contact with this person and you know you would think like wow they're These people are so messed up that they Nah, I don't think so. Because having been around some of those people and seen, you know, enough of of that, it's just it's it must be just draining for these people. Jack Nicholson said that in an Esquire interview. They asked him, you know, why do you wear the sunglasses? And he said, because it's just it's too much. It's too much to take in when, you know, eye contact through all you know all all day because everybody knows who they everybody thinks they know who you are and that must be so draining so i you know i can see that and like i said i've been around i've been doing the theater for you know a long time and been around uh actors and and you're asked that job is asking them to do stuff that I would never want to do. Never, I never want to be that ever. naked for that long in front of those people. It's like, you know, you God bless you. Go ahead and do your thing. But to strip oneself down, you know, in without standing behind an instrument. <laughs> it's like i will here. Uh, I'll take the clothes off my guitar. You can yeah. see that. Yeah, you can see you know, all this. But, but but these these actors and what they do and the singing and the crying and, you know, the craziness and all that stuff day in, day out, it's just so draining. You gotta, you gotta respect them for, uh, for having the, 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 the wherewithal to, to bring that kind of level of, of performance. You know, so, it's, it's amazing. Now that I get yeah. to conduct the show on occasion, I really get to see what goes on and I just feel it's, a, it's a big responsibility as a, musician to to you know to to color the emotional you know circumstances they're going on on the stage so i used to be the guy that would have like a you know a magazine on the music stand and a little bit checked out yeah (laughs) you know on a bad day a lot checked out (laughs) right (laughs) <laughs> I'll just read this interesting article about David Bowie while she's up there having a nervous breakdown, you know? Yeah. And then when it's time for me to play, you know, the sting when somebody walks in or something like that, I'll do that, you know, and then I'll watch for a little while and then I'll know how it goes and I can just kind of check out and still play it and read, you know, that's kind of, <clears throat> that's kind of the pit musicians experience like it or not.
0: It's a, that's a battle every day too. Yeah, like mental facility must be. Yeah, assaulted. yeah. Assaulted.
1: Yeah, and it's and it has <laughs> its it has its delusions. You know, its particular specific delusions that I think are particularly insidious. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I've discovered that was uh, you know something you never really think of is like you can play eight shows a week, so. Three, 24 hours a week performing you think well let me compare that to uh you know any other situation if you're if you're at uh <clears throat> street and you're doing six hours right a six-hour gig uh which is like what three long sets um <clears throat> Because you're breaking in between. And and that. Break. So you're there for six hours. So you're playing, out of the six hours, you're playing three and a half maybe, right? Mm-hmm. Not even not four, maybe three and a half hours of like hitting it. So let's call that four, right? So that would be six days in a row, right? 24 hours. Like how often do you play a bar gig six nights a week? No. Not that often. No. I don't know many guitar players or many musicians that play a bar gig six nights a week, right? Yeah. For an entire year with no break. Now, that's that's a lot of playing, right? That's a lot of playing. So your average pit musician who's playing on Broadway is logging that year after year after year. So if we say 24 hours a week... um, and you're doing it for 14 years. <laughs> you're logging, you know, for 5,500 performances, 5,600 performances of the same score. So you, your intimacy with this music is beyond comprehension to most people. It's not even... Right? I, yeah. <clears throat> so what happens is it's like a Mobius strip, you know? where you're kind of like you follow it this way and you go this way and it looks like you're going to the back of it but you're really only on the top of it and you keep going around and around but the illusion is that you're getting deeper and deeper into it and that's what's so insidious about it is that you think you're getting deeper into music but actually what you're doing is you're receding from music because you're playing the same thing over and over and the nature of music is spontaneity and change and being in the moment so it's a real it's a conundrum to, to do this you get the impression that you're getting better, oh, I got a gig, I'm working more than anyone else works and I'm getting really good at this and that's what is commonly known as show chops, so then you get on a gig, like a duo gig and you're just playing blues and you play like one chorus and you have no ideas left <laughs> you know. and what you played was just crap you know had nothing you know this awful you know so um that happens happens.
0: (laughs) 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 did other people tell you that this was coming i mean because pre-wicked did you do the broadway thing yeah, Three well, ninety-eight degrees, I guess. So. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. You'd do I did. it so you knew it was coming. Well, I didn't know that was coming. Ninety, what nineteen eighty? I played, I played Greece in uh, Jupiter, Florida at the Burt Reynolds Dinner Theater <laughs> but, for a year, for two years. No, or no, for like, like a week, A, a I, weekend. Yeah, it was, no, no. no, it was like I think it was a, uh, it might have been a six week run. Um and Farrah Fawcett was there and I got to meet her. So, end of story. Win-win. Yeah. Win, you know, you beyond win. And- she was teaching uh, a dance class or a, or doing like a fitness, like a Jane Fonda fitness class. And I came to the door and she was there in a sweaty t-shirt. So that was it for me. That pretty much dialed it in. That's your like, I know what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. It was two years after she did that iconic poster. You yeah. know, that everyone had in their room. Yes. You know, it was two years after, so was everything famous. was still it there. Was... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was it was amazing. Was she amazing. was so sweet. She said like, hi, honey, you want to come in? And I was like, <laughs> I didn't know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> it was, face it, it face. was awful. <laughs> it was awful. Luckily, I was just a young kid, so it, there must have oh. been some charm in there somewhere. But yes. it was... You know, it was terrible. But, yeah, I did that, and that's where I... The the thing that came I came away with from that was um, that I could actually still play the score and be bent over laughing hysterically, like, just, you know, because that's all we did was try to crack each other up. Trying to mess each other yeah, up. Yeah, just... So, it was completely irresponsible and juvenile. Uh, <laughs> I didn't do anything until uh, 1987. I... I was, um, I ended up by some strange coincidence, weird, uh, you know, confluence of, of, of events to take over, um, a good friend of mine's position with this tour of, um, Big River, the Roger Miller tune, uh, show and beautiful music like bluegrass music. And I was heavy into bebop. So I was playing bluegrass bebop. Um, and, uh, (laughs) I got a chance to play the tenor banjo, and I didn't know how to tune it. I knew it was tuned in fifths, and I think I tuned it a whole step lower than the standard, but I wasn't reading the music anyway. I just absorbed and just learned, learned it by rote the songs that I had to do. I was um, on stage and in the pit, so I kept running back and forth mm-hmm. doing that. Um, and I played acoustic guitar as well. Um, we played the Grand Old Opry, for a week with Roger Miller who wrote the show mm. and he played the part of Pap who's like Huck Finn's dad and he's like this out of control mean drunk and throughout the entire week Roger being you know such a big star and everything <laughs> he you know kept breaking character and breaking the fourth wall and cracking everybody up in the you know, the Grand Old Opry and it was this just this event. And we were so enamored by just being around, you know, this larger than life person. And I was particularly taken by the whole thing because I loved that song Trailer for Sailor Rent, you know. So I knew who he was Mm -hmm. and and I was just like in awe of this guy. And he He was so charming and such a good guy and so accessible that I figured, hey, I'm going to be in his band. (laughs) So I just got it in my mind that I was going to be in his touring band. So I went up to him. (laughs) I went to his dressing room. (laughs) I knocked on the door. I introduced myself and I said, like, you know, I'm your guitar player, blah, 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 this and that. And I said, "Um, I know you do gigs. So if you if you ever need a guitar player, I'm ready to play with you. And he said, Oh great, well if I decide to fire my guitar player, I'll definitely give you a call. It was so nice of him to say that. Yeah. I found Oops. out later that his guitar player was Danny Gatton. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, Danny in his Danny in his prime, you know? Like just the humbler yeah. here I like I'll take over you're like I'll do your game I'll bear. take over with my like three bird licks that, that I <laughs> you know memorized that I could barely eke out so that was luckily I you know I didn't find out until you know the tour was over <laughs> <laughs> so
0: wow that's a great story so Rick you were raised in Miami oh no 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 I, I was born here
1: in New York City you were born here yeah yeah, I, I didn't go millions of years here. Yeah, we didn't go down to, to uh, you know, uh, uh, Florida. I guess you know, there's a whole Florida portion of your life, and there's a whole DC portion, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, Florida <laughs> is the um, it's like one of the suburbs of Long Island, I think. So, you know, we we were born. I was I was born here and up uh, by Columbia University, 115th Street, and um, you know, lived here till I was, I guess. the v- v- four or five. And then we moved to Brooklyn and lived there and out to Queens in Elmhurst, where all the Colombians lived. And um, I think when I was about eight, eight years old, my parents bought a place out in Long Island in Suffolk County. So moved out to a place called Rocky Point. And I lived out there until I was 16. And then my parents decided to move to Florida, which to me was like the worst thing that could ever happen. I think I just started my senior year, so November of my senior year, we moved. To, <laughs> we moved to Fort Lauderdale, uh, Hollywood, Florida, and I, you know, I I went into this this high school, and these people, uh, it was such a culture shock for me because I was like from New York. I was from you know Long Island. I talked uh, like that. I was, talked you talked like know, that. Be, Suffolk voice. You know. yeah. And then I meet this guy who's like. Uh, what his name was, like Jed or something like that. And he's like, hey, you want to go get some loose gooses? And I'm like, Phew. I had no idea that this, you know, like, let's go pick up chicks. <laughs> let's go find some, like, well, get some beers and get some loose gooses. And um, I <laughs> I was shocked, but at the same time, I was really intrigued. Yeah. And I made friends with all these rednecks. And it, I, they, I guess they thought I was... Funny because I was like super Yankee, right? <laughs> so we we really hit it off, you know. Yeah. And we used to get we used to get a couple of six packs of beer and throw them in the back of a Camaro and drive out to the canals and call gators. So we'd be like, ha, 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 you know, and sure enough, the gator would come <laughs> down the canal, and we'd be drinking, you know, and carrying on and whatnot. So that that was a real um, that's a big life change especially when you were you were 16
0: as a senior so you were oh, man I was so depressed a little young.
1: I was so depressed I was I was depressed when I got down there um, I had grown up with all of the same people we'd all gone to the same school and everything like that so when I would walk down the hall in this school down in in Florida I, you know you the backs of the students' heads occasionally I would see... Like one of my friends from New York, you know, it's like the kind of same look or something like that. And I would, you know, like, oh, you know, and then I'd realize, no, that's not, that's not what's going on here. <laughs> so I got so depressed. I just, I clept out of all of my classes. I aced everything that I could take, yeah. you know, because the school systems were profoundly different down there. And, but I had to take requirements. So I took gym where I played a thing called gator ball, which I made no sense to me. You know, it's like soccer where you could touch the ball, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, and instead of having a like an actual uh, goal, it was just a chain link fence that you had to hit with. It. You know, it just it, the whole thing just depressed me. And I took um, driver's ed because I had to take that. And then I auditioned for um, independent study guitar. So I played this piece by Scarlatti. And the lady who was running the whole thing was like, well, do you want to teach? And I, I said, I'll just, I'll just practice here. So what I would do is I would just walk around the, the practice rooms. And if I saw somebody playing, I'd come in and I'd be like, hey, you want to jam? Or what are you doing there? You know. So I did make some friends um, in, in music there and ended up playing some gigs out in cow fields and cow pastures and stuff that was like the most fun, and I still have really, really dear friends who are in Hollywood, Florida, who are great musicians, mm-hmm. super you know just just great you know music just you you develop real family relationships with these people and i I love these people and i I try to stay in touch with them. they're all um great musicians and great people, so i I did get a uh I was welcomed. And encouraged to be, you know, who I am. But you know, after a while, I got, I got, I got really bored. So I, I, I had to get out of there, and I joined the Air Force. So, you know, I just, I left. You joined the Air Force. Yeah, I wanted to go to the Rockies. I wanted to go see the Rocky Mountains because I was such a New York hick. You know, I'd yeah. never seen a mountain before except the Catskills. So I wanted to go out there, and
0: I made it out there. It was fun. And you played guitar in the Air Force band.
1: Oh, no, 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 no. I was, uh, I was an electronic technician, I worked on F-15s. I did, uh, I was an avionics ground equipment repairman. And uh, after basic training, <clears throat> like six weeks of just, you know, just being menaced by people, it <laughs> broke my spirit. It broke you down? It broke my spirit. <laughs> That
0: explains your guitar pedagogy <laughs> practice, yes. <laughs> yes, they,
1: they broke my spirit completely and, and, uh, and just reduced me to a you know a haircut. And, and then I, uh, you know, that would just do whatever they told me to do. <laughs> Insane. Um, but actually, it really did. It. You know, at that age, when you're 18 years old, when somebody comes down on you that hard and there's like no way out, if you have any sense of um, you know I guess your survival instinct if if you tend to want to use your brain more than trying to fight them or something like that, you do uh, you, you can absorb some of the more i think uh, um, powerful lessons of being in the military. so I find that as I get older, I respect that more and i and I appreciate what I went through. I think in the beginning, I re- rejected it with every molecule in my body. And I also had a profound sense of idealism that ran completely in opposition with the military-industrial complex and, you know, that. Whereas now, <clears throat> you know, I'm, I'm older. I... Uh, I tend to reach back to the historical uh, genesis of, 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 you know, warfare and what that is, and I, I think of it more. I kind of supplant the whole thing, and I think like, well, what if I was in Sparta, mm-hmm. you know, or what if what if I was a Roman, or you know, then I begin to understand. Well, I I take a different appreciation for it. It's like, well, I was trained in the grand uh, tradition of civilization yeah I learned warfare and and that in itself devoid of the political implications and of course the horrors of what war war is I mean I'm a pacifist I don't want to go to war um, I don't agree with it but I understand I, I understand a necessity for it and I also understand um, the Idealistic um, philosophies behind it. you have to you have to have a sense of there has to be a belief and and then there has to be in order to initiate the belief or to you know propagate the belief, you have to have codes and rules that uplift that thing and that that's I think the thing that really I respond to now as I understand the codes. And, and the rules, and, I, and, and they give me some kind of comfort. I do translate them to music. Of course. That's, right? how, yeah. it, that's how I work. I work mm-hmm. along some of the things that I learned when I was in the military. And, and it's very satisfying. It's very effective, too. Yeah. Like, you, know, you work on it along those, you know, you'll get somewhere. Very disciplined. Yeah, yeah. I, <clears throat> a pretty good sense of discipline. And, you know, I try to be creative about it. I don't try to be, like, be like doggedly oppressive. But, you know, I, I do... Uh, I work every day. Yes, you, know. you work every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've been doing it for a long, long, long time. Every day. And most of the people I know, like, way into it, work every day. And it's just part of what you do. So... Were you playing guitar in the military the whole time then? With this kind of same sort of passion? (laughs) Like joints? Well, what happened was, uh, I I guess we were getting ready to get out. I I did basic training in... uh, That must have been six weeks with no guitar, right? Yeah, yeah, in Lackland Air Force Base in in Texas. And and, uh, the last three days or something like that, when we were getting ready to ship out to our permanent duty station. Or to our tech school, which for me was at Lowry Air Force Base in in um, Denver, Colorado, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> you I, had, made it. I had made it, you know. <laughs> you achieved so, the goal. Yeah. So like the last three days there, we had kind of like a little time to chill and to be normal people, and everybody who was like beating on us and treating us like shit, we're happy and cool and friends and stuff, and we were like, oh, okay. So um, I one of the first things I did was I went to the to the BX or the the it wasn't the BX actually it was the base uh, recreation. Place and they had soundproof rooms in there and I I asked for a telly and I got a telly and I got an amp and I got a cord and I plugged it in and I can still see myself now like with you know buzz cut and sitting in my uniform in in this room that was maybe six by eight and it was this beige color and it was perforated board so it had these little holes all in it You know what it looks like, right? And it had a little uh, heavy door and a small, like, one-foot square window, uh, double glass. And I was sitting with my back to the window, so I wasn't looking out. I was looking at the the perforated board. And I turned on the amp, and I tried to play, and I couldn't play anything. And I started crying. Mm. And that was the moment where I realized that I had made a huge mistake. (laughs) (laughs) And that... And I still remember it, like yeah. it was yesterday, you know You're it was like, a very private you know moment, and i I just sat there and I started crying um, <laughs> what a wimp so <laughs> i um I resolved to <clears throat> to get to do what i really i think was i don't know just what, maybe i don't know if I was actually born to play the guitar, but nobody's really born to do anything I don't think, but <clears throat> it's what I had conditioned myself to do mm-hmm. so. I figured that was probably the thing that was more, that was the closest to my natural state. So when I got to uh, to Lowry, I, I had my dad send me my telly and I just, you know, I had a little amp there and I just started playing every day whenever I could. You know, I went through tech school, electronic school, got in trouble and, you know, ate peyote and did all kinds of crazy stuff. and. You know, the, just the normal, normal stuff that people do, right? <laughs> you're supposed to do that. At yeah, age, to, Yes. To take hallucinogenics, <laughs> You know. Well, what do you what do you want? You're out there in the mountains. It's like you yeah. Know, what do you do? It's just, it's just so beautiful out there. Of course, you're gonna trip your brains out. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So it was a it was a long journey, but that I think that was I already knew how to play. I you know. Pretty much made my marks in high school and stuff like that, as far as being the guitar player in the school and whatnot. So I did. I, I did have a, a, a strong sense of identity around the guitar as a as a very as a young boy. I, I connected quickly to that, and I always did that. But um, I believe
0: that's on your bio, right? Started playing it. At-
1: I started when I was. At well, five three. Like that. yeah, I something. peaked at six. Peaked at six. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my grandmother gave me a quattro, I think, or something like that at, at three. And, you know, by six, I had you were pretty rushing. much done every, everything that I could ever do. And ever since then, it's just a repetition of that, yeah. you know, what I was hitting at six, a little less. <laughs> yeah that's that's a pretty accurate thing it still Good stands line, yeah yeah <laughs> but anyway um to get back to that whole uh broadway thing i did have a great um opportunity in 1994 when i got to play the the who's tommy the tour with the who's yes. tommy and i got to
0: this is th- just the in town production or the tour
1: no no the tour the first national tour which um pete townsend um coined the band the great eight Mm-hmm. And I have this great shirt, you know, this Tommy tour shirt <laughs> that says the Great Eight on the back, and it's signed by Pete. And uh, everyone called me Rico. I was Rico, so I don't know. You know, that just kind of was the nickname that I had there. But um, I did have a, a, a few really deep, beautiful, um, you know, once in a lifetime. Memories from from that particular tour, conversations with Pete Townsend, and um, hanging out with John Antwistle, and and seeing, you know, just kind of getting a sense of what that the grandeur of the uh, of, of of the kind of lives that these people live, you know, what you know, not to not to put people on a pedestal, but just to look at. At, well, the circumstances of your life, you were 24 years old and you wrote the first, like, really uh, uh, immense rock opera, 24 years old. You know, and from then on, you just traveled in the rarefied air of a millionaire in because of your art, you know, because of what you dreamed as a, as a young man. And you, to see this guy, 60 years old, you know, or I guess he was in his late 50s or something like that, you know, 60, yeah. Um, and to see the result of an entire life like that with all of the excesses and, you know, stories that he told me about Pete, about um, Keith Moon, and, you know, because I asked, I was like, what was it like? You know, what, is, what was what this was like? This and, and he was so forthcoming. You give him a couple of pints and sit around at a bar, and he's like, you know, chatting. He's telling you great stories. So it was a real... For me, it was it was just such an amazing opportunity to like be in that world. And there was a moment for me the the crowning moment of that. I played guitar too, so I played when we played pinball. Scott Totten, great guitar player, who's a Beach Boy now and deserves every bit of it because he sings like a bird and he's (laughs) an amazing guitar player and so such an attention to detail. Of course, he's the music director of the Beach Boys. (laughs) Um, good friend and and uh, really someone that taught me a lot when I was on tour with him um, <laughs> <we> <laughs> you know you know the part where it goes uh, uh, <laughs> man I'm trying to think of the lyric is but in pinball the the part that goes how do you think he does it Right, that lick and how do you think right i had to play that lick and if i was just a (laughs) most of the time i would go and scott would lean over to me and go tune it Oh man, yeah. that guy amazing! Alan Childs, great drummer. Uh, Gary Bristol was bass player. Jeff Jenkins was playing keyboards. Tom Torriello. Um, Alan Grant was great French horn player. I mean, we really it's we a were heavy band. We were it was a heavy band, man, and we were just we were in it to win it. Um, so this we're playing at the Universal Amphitheater. We were opening there, and everybody was there. I mean, this is when Seinfeld was at the big. and they were all there and Oliver Stone and Aerosmith and the Chili Peppers and um Dave Navarro and you know it's just like this Schwarzenegger everybody was there it was this huge thing opening night of Tommy at the Universal Amphitheater so there's this buzz this electricity and all these people everywhere and we were really like pumped so the um the orchestra pit was actually sunk down under the stage and it was just uh, this concrete bunker and uh by this time in the tour uh we were standing when we played because i think about three weeks in <laughs> uh you know i'm gonna just wave my own flag for a minute but i decided that if I'm gonna play this right I'm gonna stand up stand. I'm gonna sit for the acoustic but I'm gonna stand up when I'm playing pinball because I was I was playing the electric part so I would play down, down and I had you know I wanted my guitar slung right and I wanted to just feel the you know the energy I wanted to be able play. to hit the guitar the right yeah. way you know and all those things you know and I this this was um I mean, Big River was one thing. It was like, oh, this is a nice thing. But this is a rock thing. And and also, when I heard Tommy the first time, when I heard the the Broadway cast album and everything, I thought, why are they singing with these fake English accents? You know, why is there so much reverb? I, it just felt like so un inauthentic. I hate to say that, but it did feel that way compared to the the classic recording that I grew up with. So I wanted to be. I think the band we all made a a pact that we were going to be like like live at Leeds. That's what we went for was Mm -hmm. live at Leeds, and we listened to it every night in the hotel room for months. We would sit and we would dissect and dissect them. We were like ethnomusicologists who were tasks tasked with replicating, you know, like building a dinosaur or something like that out Mm -hmm. of bones. So we we took it very seriously and we gave each other props when things happened the way they happened on the record or it sounded like it, you know, and, and we were really into the minutia. And again, you know, Scott Totten to mention him, that cat was like, you know, attention to detail, pretty heavy. So, um, so here we are, we just finished playing, uh, acid queen (laughs) and, uh, so Scott starts the you know ding 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 you know the intro to pinball. So he's playing on the acoustic guitar, and I'm standing there, and I'm thinking I Les Paul at the time P 90s. Low slung. I've got a matchless clubman 35 dimed) But I had a Marshall power break clicked one click, so it was still loud as hell. But it was one click back, so it would be a little more, you know, um, because I'd already blown up my high watt Um, so like months before that. So I'm standing there and I'm listening to the intro, and there's just this the electricity because, you know, this is the moment we're going to do pinball, and that's like the moment in in the show right before the end of the first act where it's just it was consistently completely electric and so I'm I'm waiting and I look over to my right and right in the loading dock section I see I see this I see bent over (laughs) Pete Townsend you know bent over like with just his head sticking out perpendicular to this opening looking right at me Right. And I make eye contact with him and he immediately voof, he straightens up and disappears. <laughs> so I'm thinking to myself, um, he didn't want me to, he didn't want me to choke, you know, so he, he, he was pretty gracious in backing away so that I wouldn't be nervous, even though I was nervous at the time. But when I saw that it was, I felt like, um, okay. It's an honor to do this. I'm going to do you proud. I'm going to do you right. You know, And I, I, I did feel that sense of like, oh, he, he just, it's like a handoff, like somebody hands the ball to you. You, you run, go. run to the goal line, and you will not stop till you get to the goal line. Yeah. And that's how it felt. It was just like, oh, you're giving it to me. Boom, check this. Boom, here we go. And yeah. I felt like that. I felt like this is my, this is my shit, right? Bang. I'm going to play this as if I wrote it. And um, it, was a, it, it was a heavy moment because it freed me from any kind of anxiety of like, am I really a guitar player? Because I've always, we all have that. Of am course, I really constantly. a guitar You know, you hear like, I mean, I studied with Joe Pass and I remember I said to him, I had to do a gig, right? <laughs> He gives me this four hour lesson, you know, and I'm like, Joe, I'm sorry, but I gotta go. He's like, Why? And I said, I have a gig. He gets his cigar in his mouth, he pulls it out of his mouth, and he goes, You got a gig? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was, I was, sixteen at the time, you know. But maybe I was, <laughs> Joe, like, go maybe right I was seventeen. No, not no. Joe
0: passed, man.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you got a gig I know all my friends that's like I, scarring I know I tell that story to all my friends and whenever I say yeah I got a gig at they, the ones go, who know are always like you got a gig <laughs> what the hell <laughs> I, I, t- I tend to get insulted <laughs> I have stories of being insulted by great musicians <laughs> yeah. right the other one was, here's a good one, Santana, right? I'm, I'm on Sunset Boulevard and I'm at the Mesa Boogie Store and we're playing at the amphitheater with the Who's Tommy, right? We had already opened. So we were there for, I don't know, six weeks or something. I don't know how long we were there. Anyway, so I'm over at the Mesa Boogie Store and I'm, you know, chilling. And uh, I see all of a sudden Carlos Santana walks in with uh, his brother, Jorge, right? Okay. And, yeah. and half the band, yeah. Yeah. They, walk in they walk in and I'm in. like, Oh shit. It's like my idol, yes. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this your right? Yeah. This is my, my dude. So, you know, I'm kind of like walking around looking at him and I, and I say like, hi, <laughs> you know, and I shake his hand and I'm like, Whoa, <laughs> amazing. Right. I'm meeting my idol and I walk out of the store and, uh, I was with my wife at the time and she said to me, Man, you should just go back in there and invite him to the show. And I'm like, no, no, no. She goes, no, really, you should just invite him to the show. Come on, you should. You're playing there. Have him see you play. And I was like, okay. So I walked back in. You know, I mean, like we'd already walked down. You've like, already
0: walked out of the store. Like yeah.
1: half half a block. You know, I turn around and I walk back in there. <laughs> And I walk up to him. And by now, he's kind of engaged with a salesman or something like that. And I'm interrupting him, (laughs) which is even worse. And I go, uh, I go, Carlos, I'm playing at the Universal Amphitheater um, with the Who's Tommy. And I would just like to invite you and your brother and your group to come and be my guest and come and see the show. And he goes, oh, thanks, man. I'm sure I would dig your playing, but... I don't like that music. I don't like Tommy. That's exactly, exactly how he said it. <laughs> I don't like that music. I don't like Tommy. <laughs> and so I went and I told everybody in the, in the band and these guys were like, from then on, everybody was like, I don't like Tommy. <laughs> it
0: became this thing. <laughs>
1: Once again, you know, I had managed to be insulted by my idol. Yeah. So,
0: <laughs> you're like, oh, oh man. Game, man,
1: you know, that's, <laughs> I, I, it seems to be something that I do effortlessly. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, uh, you get to
1: <laughs> share these wonderful stories, you know. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> oh
0: man, Rick, those are this is too much. You get to do this to other people now, though. I'm sure, right? Guys come into the Wicked Pit, and you're just like, do you think you can do this gig? <laughs> <laughs> it, Watch it me kinda... play nineteen instruments that I've been doing for fourteen
1: years. <laughs> Check this out. Uh, you know, it's weird because there's well, as as you know, I'm I'm a real advocate for. Uh, you know, opening up the doors for other players, young players, and of course, and I, 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 I take it upon myself to, to try to, to try to be, uh, you know, kind of like I said, open and forthcoming because I, I encountered s- such a click thing early on in my career. There were, I think, when I was in Florida and I was trying to break in, there was a whole kind of like. Fusion thing there Jocko was there And I I spent many nights Watching Jocko play With um, Alex Starkey And um, Richie Franks And uh, Mark Colby And Randy Burnson At um, A club called McGowan's On the beach In Hollywood And you know You go there Tuesday night There'd be three people In the bar Mm -hmm. And they would be Reading Like a tune Like Opalaka that That Jocko had written, and you're sitting there, or at least I was sitting there watching these guys many, many nights, uh experimenting and just reading and blowing over over these tunes, nobody else there, like maybe you know three, five people, maybe whatever, right next to the Florida Bible college, like there's sand in the floor almost yeah, and you know i I just knew that from what I was hearing, it was like Jocko just had this sound that was you know, I'd never heard anything. No one, no one had ever heard that.
0: what am I listening
1: to? No no one had ever heard that. And he had just left Wayne Cochran and the CC Riders, and he was young and he was not um, drinking or anything at the time. So it was before weather report and it was right before Joni. And that's when I got to like hang and watch and, and be um, just kind of like peripherally educated by watching those great musicians do that work. and, Um, I became friends with Mike Gerber, the blind pianist who lives down there now, who's also a a remarkable musician and had a lot to do with teaching me how to play one standard for like an hour without stopping and, you know, try to really find, figure out things and how to find your way through things. So, um, but one of the things that I encountered there was I try, I wanted to be a part of it. I knew I could play Mm -hmm. and I wanted to be a part of their clique but I didn't know how to be. Uh, I guess it was just too New York or something like that. I was just too pushy, and you know. And sometimes I see that in young players here. You know, when they come to Wicked, I see guys that are just so enthusiastic that they start saying things that just, you know, it's like, shut up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like just, they're just like trying so hard. I mean, I see it now, so of course I'm. Much more benevolent to that, but I could see where if I was just a couple of years older than them, I'd yeah. be like, "Like, dude, just get out of my face." It's like, "Chill, back it. off, you, you know, take it down a few notches." It's like, "Chill," right? And I was the kind of like, "Like, hey, we're playing the I really like to play. You know, whatever. You know, how do you get gigs? Just a little too much." And so, to answer your question, um, I do see that, but I have a lot more tolerance. You know, and I'm a dad too, so you know, you you learn that way too. (laughs) But yeah, but um, there are players who uh, I let anybody pretty much anybody who has an initiative come in. I think at this point, I'm beginning to put up a couple of little firewalls just to keep you know, real casual tourists from sitting there because it tends to it takes up a little bit of space in the pit and sometimes some people around me, it's just to be cool to the people around me also to not yeah. wear them out with, you know, here's another off world or, you know, in sitting in the pit. So I do ask them, <laughs> it's pretty funny because I do ask them very straight. I say, um, are you interested in playing the book one chair at wicked? And I say it that way yeah. because it kind of like puts it into a, it just kind of puts it into the right category. You want to do this job? you know, or do you just want to kind of hang out and it would be wonderful if you could ever get a chance to do this and wouldn't it be great, you know, I don't want that. Um, that said, there are people who come in and they, you know, I give them the score and I give them the, the MP3s and whatnot and then never hear from them. Or I hear these kind of every once in a while, I'm still working on it and it's really hard. Or, or uh, I'm going to keep working or I'm going to start working on it. You know, they kind of give me these progress reports. And then there are the guys who I think are the sharks. Those are the ones that are really, it's just a delight to see these guys because they're young and they're, you know, they come in and they check it out and they're like, yeah, I'd like to come in. They'll say the right thing. They'll say like, uh, "I'd like to come in and watch the conductor next week." And I'm like, "Oh, oh, this guy knows what he's doing." Mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, or they'll ask me, you know, the PDM one. That's an old pedal. That's like from the early '90s. Um, I don't have anything like that. What would you recommend? You know, something like that, or you know, when they start to comment on that, or they tell me they ask questions about the Ebo technique like how do you get a diphthong sound you know no one's really asked me that but I'm waiting for someone to say that just in case anyone's listening um, <laughs> because that's, a, that's the Ebo work a, it's a subtle art to get the note to go you know mm, instead yeah. of just like mm. so anyway um, they uh, then they come in and they've got this color coded score and they just nail it you know, after like maybe three, four weeks of of watching, and and you know that these people are serious. And Dude, once in a while, study. once in a while, guys come in and they they, they do this. They they you know kick ass. Um, you know, and and for me to to help anybody, um, to watch them burst like there's this one one guy who I met through just strange LinkedIn thing with his mom, who's a, um, um, she's a videographer and I figured, Oh, well maybe I'll write some music for her, you know? And I started looking through her videos and I saw this one video, of this kid in a basement, you know, doing this kind of funk tune and had such an amazing feel, a great feel yeah. and, and was playing keyboards and playing bass and playing you know, the guitar and this kind of split the screen thing that, that the young kids are doing these days, <laughs> you know? Yes. Yes. I know. Uh, and I just sent an email. Yeah. I guess this was about four years ago, four or five years ago. And just kind of said like, you know, if I see that your son is, has a lot of talent and if he's interested to see what a uh, working musician might do, look like in what I do have him come down and sit in in the pit well anyway this guy Adam Kornreich now is um, he's going out on the the first national tour of um, Hamilton and he's a bad dude I mean he's like such a he's a great player and and he was a kid in his mom's basement like (laughs) had (laughs) nothing nothing happening you know and now he's you know he's known you know Everybody a knows, dude on the scene, everybody yes. knows Adam, you know, Acorn, he's a bad dude. And, and I've, and it's a particular point of pride because he's a good friend of mine. And, and, uh, we have, you know, we just kind of like have connected in a real similar, similar worldview. He's very funny and very dry and, um, you know, thoughtful cat and plays his ass off and you know, plays really well. So I, you know, I do. Wish him well, and I'm in. It's I'm very proud to be a part of of uh, his his development, and I think that that's what, as much as that might be a cliche or something like that, that's where it's all at. You know, if if you can send people off in a way that kind of energizes their booster rockets and send them out, you know, (coughs) to to make great music. You really feel a sense of accomplishment, much more than like, oh, I was just look, check out this lick or I wrote this tune. Or, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That only goes so far. You know. It's, yeah. It's the human it's the humanistic view. It's the it's the actual human, the potential of a whole other person that took a you know, maybe a little page from your book and you know, kinda of took it with them. That's there's nothing better than that. That's well, that's you're really very good at that.
0: Like when, when we talk about Oscar, right? I'm always like, Oscar, what are you working on now? He's like, same shit Rick gave me 15 years
1: ago. Man. And I say, me too, man. <laughs> I know what you're talking about. Hey, you so guys, you guys are cats now. You guys are, you know, you I'll guys wait. are in a whole other.
0: You here's know, a, something. Here's just something I whipped up called rotating melodic minors. Just check this out. Like you're, <laughs> you're like, what the fuck?
1: You this guys is. are all forces uh, uh, amongst yourselves. I mean. Oscar, you know, you and Beth Callen, um, Freeman, all you guys, you know, it's that's a whole, that's a society. And for me, you know, to to be your, your friends, it just kind of, it makes me feel great because like I have real friends, you know, I mean, I, for me, it's just amazing to see what you guys are doing. I love it. Well, thanks to you.
0: And are we going to get a record of... Uh... Gypsy Jazz? What's the next? (laughs) To wrap (laughs) this up. To wrap this up. Tell us us the future for Rick Molina. (laughs) Because I think we're always like, when the hell is Rick playing? When is Rick doing a record? (laughs) And you're just like, well, I'm not into that anymore. I'm checking out this now. Well, they say that the first... For these listeners, let me say So, just so you... When I (laughs) met you, you were leaving the blues phase. Became a classical head. A militant classical guy for a little while. Got back into bebop. Then you had a mini country stint. In, right. Then you did the slide acoustic. Oh, yeah, that yeah, That was yeah. a whole fix. Oh, yeah, yeah, and then this, that. your heart has really been captured by... Well, you know, gypsy I've, jazz. I've always
1: so. liked, I've always liked Django Reinhardt's music, and I listened yeah. to him when I was a child. So, I mean, that's always been a part of me. It, I just nev- I tried to learn some of the stuff, but I just didn't have the discipline, and the control. I had no idea how to get that sound. So, I decided, I guess, about two and a half years ago to, <laughs> of course, the way I do it is you buy the guitar. <laughs> that's how you do it. And then once I bought the guitar, I thought, well, now I can play. <laughs> <laughs> and that was, you know, de- that was the height of my delusion right there. Was But, but you know, the guitar sits in your room and, you know, you walk in. I mean, I played it for a little while. I tried to play it, couldn't get a sound out of it, and realized that I was just fooling myself. And I just spent like $4,000 for a gorgeous Shelley Park uh, encore, an amazing instrument, and, you know, put it back in the case. And then I was like... Um, I would walk into my room to pick up my telly and I would hear, you know, and and I would look over and it's the guitar in the case, you know, occasionally I would take it out and I would put on a Django record and try to play. I had no idea what I was doing. And it wasn't until I went to, I I decided to, you know, drop a grand and go to um, Northampton. Massachusetts mm-hmm. up to Django in June uh in Smith College and surround myself with people to be just just, just to weather like a good solid week of humiliation and, <laughs> and that I think that, that
0: was the, the you know and, point view, right yeah. and for me you know like, <laughs> oh man
1: for me that kind of like repeated beat down <laughs> is what what makes me formulate a plan of escape. Like, how will I escape the beat down? You know, well, I know what I'll do. I'll learn how to play rhythm first and I'll take lessons with a rhythm player. You know, it's like, that's how you do it. Um, To, to just answer your question as far as records or anything like that. um, They, the conventional wisdom is that the first 30 years of gypsy playing is the hard part. And then after that, it gets easy. So since I started two and a half years ago, Um, that would put me at 90, maybe by 89 or 90. So, (laughs) so, uh, before it gets easy, (laughs) um, no, I, uh, I work at it a few hours every day. I do play out in central park, like I said, about three times a week, you know, when, when it's warm and that'll go to, I already have some venues here in, my hallowed neighborhood of Inwood where we will be doing uh, having a gypsy thing, mm-hmm. which I'm putting together. Um, that said, I'm not, I, I love the music and I do, and and I'm doing some very, very deep research on it um, and practicing quite a lot and playing with great players. And I've been really lucky that a lot of the Parisian players and have welcomed me into this, this little collective, and so they're actually, they actually do play with me, which, you know, is a miracle, because they're so, so virtuosic, I couldn't even touch, like, the ground that they trot upon, but um, nonetheless, you do learn by, by osmosis with people who are so much better than you, that it just tends to, it just lifts you up really quickly, so that, that's a great thing. Um, the, uh, as far as, like, what my plans are, I do have a concert coming up at, at, um, T.R. Crandall's guitar shop on the Lower East side, East 4th street. And I've been, this is the fourth year I do their Christmas party, their holiday party. Mm -hmm. And I, I started with, um, guys who subbed for me on wicked I had eight guitars. (laughs) And, And so I divided into four, I wrote music in four parts, all music that I've arranged of Christmas music and other stuff. And, um, as it grew, the, the you know I did it every year, and I'd get different players. And now I've whittled it down to just four of us. It's Ratso Harris, who's an international, uh, rec- internationally recognized um, jazz bass player, like a real master, one of the greats, um, and uh, Paul Ballenbach, who's also an amazing guitar player and in, in pretty much family to me. He's he is. Uh, my brother, I've known him for, I, I guess I met Paul in uh, 1982 or 83. So we've, we go back quite a bit. And we lived uh, in the same place. We both studied with Dr. Asher Zlotnick at the Peabody Conservatory. So we're, we're very, very close. And we speak a very uh, great personal language, the two of us. Um, he's a remarkable musician. And Tad DeBrock, who you know. Tad, right? yes. Tad, who's the man about town and He's a man about s- town, stylish voice on the guitar, one of the most beautiful, elegant players I've ever heard. So it's a thrill to have him involved as well. And um, the plan is to either bring our guitars or show up at the shop and pull a couple of, you know, $10,000 acoustics off the wall and mm-hmm. play with the tags still on the guitars. And we are rehearsing some pretty challenging music uh you know i knowing who i'm writing for i get a chance to really indulge my imagination and maybe even write things that i would never be able to play and make paul play them (laughs) 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 yeah right yeah so uh there's that aspect to it so i'm really very thrilled about it and and yes i i do have the rmg the rick molina group and The last gig we played was maybe two and a half years ago or something like that. And the reason why I I stopped doing it was because I wanted to reassess and get into acoustic guitar playing. And I had to change my technique again for like the 10th time. Um, I think I've pretty much gone through um, my entire development as a musician has always been to try to then get better. And and I, I have re-evaluated or started from square one technically on the instrument a number of times and um, that's something that people tend to be afraid to do because they figure I'm too far gone I already know how to play a certain way but I would highly recommend that because if you can I'll just leave you with this if you can uh, find a way to understand that there is no ownership there will never be any ownership as soon as you own um, your music you've lost the to me the most important element of music which is the uh, the unknown so if i if i come in as a child and it's like well I, I don't know how to play music and then I start to play music I, I feel that that to me is the most satisfying because that's where I find I discover things that I, I never have discovered before and I did hear that Miles Davis said to Wayne Shorter um, play like you don't know how to play mm-hmm. you know yes <laughs> so <laughs> you know I think that that's I think that's cool Picasso did that I mean all the greats you know Bacon, uh, Francis Bacon, and, and um, Willem de Kooning. You know these painters that I I, I respect so much. Um, oh, we didn't even touch upon your painting. I know. Uh, yeah. Well, that's that's for another a whole other time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but I do I do think in terms of painting. So that's
0: so. This is two years into the new technique rebuild.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's coming along. Does this totally affect how you play the telly just on the... Oh, yeah. You to, everything. Just, everything. It's a totally everything. different... Changed
1: way. the whole thing. Changed everything. Yeah. It's a it's a different way. I'm applying... Um, I mean, it's, it, it, very briefly, it's because the, the uh, you know, the guitar came... From, you know, the oud is played with a quill and it's played with the, the right hand. The wrist is is uh, bent more than, than you normally play your Strat or whatever... Not to say that I gave up on any other technique. It's this is an additional technique mm-hmm. that I am bringing to uh, trying to raise to the level of my other techniques because I still play classical guitar and I still play fingerstyle and you know I still um, like Scotty Moore and I'm you know try to play Scotty Moore style you know the Elvis players and in rockabilly and all that fingerstyle, um, but um, this particular style is is really it goes back to um, you know, the oud style. Joe Pass played like that. Um, so I, I just wanted to develop a, a plectrum style. Bill Frizzell plays like that. If you watch Bill Frizzell, he plays mainly downstrokes, but he plays pick and fingers. Um, Charlie Christian played with mainly downstrokes. It's a downstroke um, style, and it's very demanding to play backwards like that. So from the high E string to the B to the G to the D to the A to the E, to play downstrokes in that direction requires um, a real supple approach. You know, you have to be very, very relaxed and very accurate at the same time. And that's really hard to do, Mm. you know, especially if you want to project with power. And that's what these gypsy players do. And I think that that's one of the hidden things that once you start to get in this style, all of a sudden you discover it and it's like walking into a cave and then suddenly seeing like a woolly mammoth in there and just being like, holy, you know, I had no idea this was in here. Yeah. And that's what, what that style is. But uh, it pays off. You know, Joe Pass told me, he said, he said, play, play pick and fingers and try to play without a pick. And he said, don't play like classical. He's like don't th- even think about your right hand. Just get the sound out. You know, and you listen to the virtuoso record and you hear uh, you know those recordings, you hear how what he was doing with a plectrum and picking and fingers and it's remarkable. I mean, he played like you know, Art Tatum on the guitar. It's like not, not many people could play like that. Even oh, now it's st- it stands up as one of the great guitar recordings of all time mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that said if you listen to eddie lang you know you'll hear the this plectrum style also he also played with his fingers too but you'll hear the plectrum style that i'm talking about it's like a downstroke style it's very powerful it's very positive positive. and what you might lose in like Ingve style style Ingve style Yngwie? shredding you know yeah. what you may lose in this Cheers. strict up and down like Paul Gilbert style or you know, that you gain in um, a certain melodic thrust that is really, it's really intense studying Django Reinhardt. If you get down to the point where if you granulate it to the point where you're listening to that note and then that note and then that note, and I mean that slowly, If you start to listen to his lines like that, you'll begin to discover the choices that he was making, whether this one will be an upstroke or will this one be a downstroke. And that makes all the difference in the rhythmic propulsion and in the swing of the line, which is why guys can't sound like Django. Like, there are some guys who come close. This kid, uh, uh, Duvid Dunayevsky in Paris, Sounds like 1930s Django, remarkably so. Um, and, of course, the avatars, you know, Stuccalo Rosenberg, he doesn't sound exactly like Django. He's like a next generation. Remble, at times, can, sound, can cop some of these stuff. I mean, the great guys can cop Django's lines, but Duvet seems to have something about the 30s that he's very restrictive about, it and it's, he's very authentic. Nonetheless, um, that's where the devil is in, in, in that music. Yeah. So you have to you have to be super patient <laughs> to get any of that stuff down, you know. And you have to forgive yourself at the end of the day because you're just going to play who you are. Yeah. But there's nothing better than that's what Lee Konitz taught me. It's like you to get inside the sound of the player and to replicate the player to the point where you can try to make yourself disappear in the sound of the of, of the person you're trying to emulate. And I think that that it sharpens the skills of being able to be yourself. Because, you know, Thelonious Monk, is tips for musicians, he said, the genius is the one who's most like himself. Yeah. Right? Yes, yes. So, all right. <laughs> he also said that. All right. All right. I guess that must mean all right. I hope so. Yeah. Do you mean all right, Mr. Monk? Yeah. Is that what you mean by that? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, thank you so much Rick you were a man man
1: was that was, a lot of that was it there's a lot of stories there's a lot of good ones <laughs> well thanks man thanks for asking me it's always cool to hang out with you you man